is it right? Is it just to ask young women of childbearing age who are most at risk from nutrient deficiencies at this period of their lives? Mm -hmm. Is it right to ask them to do without animal source foods? At what point does that become immoral? Because even Eat Lancet, which is um, the organization that you may know about who's who's pushing for the plant-based diet around the world and for the past five years has been doing so. In its original report, even they said that their diet, which is about half an ounce of meat a day, it's it's so nearly vegan um, and it really downplays the importance of dairy and eggs and um, any animal foods. Even they admit that that diet is not suitable for babies, children, toddlers, teenagers, young women of childbearing age, pregnant women, ill people, old people. So this is, again, the fine print. And I just do not understand how anyone can hold up that diet as the best diet if um, that is true. It's, it's just it's not right. It is immoral to do that. Welcome to Your Body's Way a podcast for all of you health-conscious humans out there who want to nourish, move, and take care of your body your way. Not the diet book's way or even my way. Your journey to find your body's way through all of the noise and nonsense starts right here, where I'll be presenting and breaking down all of the current popular health practices so you can make intelligent choices that work for you and you alone. You know what they say, if the shoe fits... So I encourage you to take on what sounds tempting and to reject what doesn't. So let's dive into your journey to becoming the person you know you can be. Hey there, welcome back to Your Body's Way. I am Tamara Walpole, your host. And welcome back to another week and another super juicy conversation. And this week, I have to say, I'm not going to let you down because today's guest is Jane Buxton. And she is a well-established author, um, a fantastic writer, actually. And she has written a book recently in the last couple of years called The Great Plant-Based Con. And it is an absolute cracker. It's basically about um, how um, vegan and vegetarian and plant-based advocates, so people who push the idea that plant-based eating is better for your health than and better for the environment as well than eating meat and animal-based products. It's basically a book um, designed to debunk all of those theories that they put out there and it's just so well written and I really enjoyed reading the book and I enjoyed talking to Jane about it even more so because there are so many areas covered in it and it's so well researched and easy to read as well um, especially for the layperson like myself as well who you know I don't have the most scientific I don't have the most scientific kind of sciencey brain so when it comes to reading books like this you know having it broken down well is important for me so I have to say it's a fantastic book and um, Jane just really knows her stuff and she's so well spoken about the topic just to let you know um, during the episode 
at approximately 45 minutes in, approximately, um, Jane mentions an organisation called the ACLM. And what I wanted to give special mention to you is that it stands for the American College of Lifestyle Medicine, which is basically a society of medical professionals, which um, is kind of designed and united to reverse chronic disease. So it's important to make sure that you know that the um, ACLM, uh, ACRM is the American College of Lifestyle Medicine. Okay, so I'm not going to hold you any further. This is Jane, but right after this quick ad. I'm just going to cut in here quickly to tell you about an amazing supplement and healthy snack company, Paleo Valley. Have I got a treat for you. I love the way they only use the best ingredients that are ethically sourced for you and your family. And you can't miss the podcast episode number 43 with Autumn Smith, the co-founder of Paleo Valley, because once you listen to it, you'll see that she lives and breathes health for her customers and the planet. My favorite product by far is the grass-fed organ complex. I know organ meats are the most nutritious foods on the planet, but I struggle to stomach them from time to time, right? But I'm not too worried about missing out on essential nutrients like iron, vitamin B12 and CoQ10 because this 30-day supplement has me covered. I couldn't recommend it enough. My eyes actually feel brighter and my cognitive energy has definitely improved after the first month of use. So if you want the same for yourself, click the link in the show notes for 15% off your next order. You can thank me later. Jane Buxton, this is such a pleasure. Welcome to the Your Body's Way podcast. I'm so, so happy to have you on this call. And as we were just discussing just now, um, you you weren't easy to get hold of. So I'm really glad that we finally get to have this conversation. Um, we are going to dive in to your book today. Um, I believe it's from 2023, right? I forgot to double check the date. Was it 2022? Actually, the, the hardback was 2022 and the, right. the paperback was 2023. So it's always a year later. So the, the paperback right. only has come out. Okay. Wow. Congratulations. Yeah. Um, the great plant-based con. I've got the Kindle version because I do everything on Kindle. And and because I'm in Cayman Islands, it's not easy for me to receive books. Mm -hmm. Um, But I have to say, this is an absolutely fabulous book. I've been really enjoying reading it. Um, I would describe it as controversial. I explain it as um, humorous at times, really informative, and just perfect for the layperson like somebody who's just interested in this topic and just wants to learn more. And I think you, you know, capture that really, really well. So I can't wait to dive into this book and to speak to you about it rather than just reading the words on the page. I can't wait to actually hear what you have to say about it. Um, But first of all, uh, you're in Wiltshire, you said. Um, So how are things over there? How's the weather, by the way? Well, today it's really sunny, so it's absolutely wonderful, um, beautiful. And yesterday it was pouring with rain. You never know what you're going to get, but um, it is it is truly lovely out here. And it's a, it's a new thing for me. We've only been here eight months, and I'm a pretty urban girl, so I'm used to yeah. London and that kind of environment. And um, this has all just been a whole assault on the senses for us living here. You know, with ducks outside on my pond and deer in the field and 
um, everywhere, the most beautiful countryside. Farming is very big around here. So it's been very good for me to connect with people who are actually doing a lot of the stuff I write about in the book. Um, so it's been it's been professionally and uh, personally a very, very good thing. Yeah, because in cities, um, you know, it's, it's it's difficult to be in touch with nature and to um, like try and get hold of the types of foods that we speak about and that we advocate for people and that we, um, you know, that we think is the best for our health. Um, it's really difficult. But I understand when you say you're um, an urban girl, because I am too. Uh, but it's really interesting because this just, just came to mind. We were talking about your blog, um, The Diary of a Legal Alien. And I have to say, when I was first researching you, I came across that blog and it was fantastic. It's a very humorous um, blog about you living in New York. Mm, so you're right. one hell of an urban girl, like London, New York. How yeah. was that? Because I freaking love New York. Like, how was it actually living there? Oh, it was amazing. Again, a total shock to the senses. I remember the first night we got there, the first night in our apartment, we lay awake and Literally, there was a cacophony of noise all night long, literally till five in the morning and then starts again at six. Um, sirens, um, honking horns, people shouting in the street, just so much. And we looked at each other. We thought, what are we? We're never going to be able to sleep here. How do people live here? You know, um, well, within a week, it was just background. Within a week, we were so used to it. So New York is really vibrant and loud and tense and everything is available mm. everything's on your doorstep I, that's what I love and, um yeah it's, it's completely different from where I live now so I do feel like we've had the most extreme experiences of both kind you know mm -hmm. um which is great but it was only for a year and so it was I really just embraced it and I wrote that blog really as much for myself so I could remember what it felt like every new thing yeah, uh, yeah. that we were experiencing but I, I love that because, um, you know, this this kind of goes back to what you, you do. And you are an author, um, an incredibly successful author. And I noticed that you have a master's in creative writing, which is just fabulous. I mean, you know, when you always, you know, I don't know if you have this, but I think most people have this, when they wish they could go back in time and they could mm -hmm. kind of do something a little bit different. And I always think, gosh, you know, I wish I studied like English, creative writing. I wish I went down that road as as just because it's one of my interests, like writing. But I've never been any, I've, I've never been like, um, I'm, a, I'm an okay writer, but you know, I'm, I don't have those skills that someone who's trained has. And, you might, um, do. might uh, do. Maybe, maybe. But I, I can imagine with your book, um, The Great Plant-Based Con, I mean, you've got four books under your belt, I presume. Yeah, and two are fiction and two are non-fiction. Mm. And so, again, there's that sort of, there are a lot of different things in my life. And, um, you know, I, I started out as a management consultant and I did an MBA and an MBA cannot be more different to a master's in creative writing in many ways. You know, um, one is all about data, uh, analysis, hard facts, uh, logic. Um, that's what you're trained to, to look at and you're trained to apply that to client situations in, in the work. Um, mm -hmm. uh, creative writing is about, um, Yes, it's about technique, and that's what I went because I wanted to master technique, deep technique. But it's also about opening your mind, unblocking uh, imagination, creativity. It's about um, uh, really nurturing those things in yourself. Um, so at first glance, they look like two separate ways of thinking and separate 
skill sets, but I found that they were really helpful both sets when I was writing this particular book. I was going to say. Because I, I had to learn to analyze data, study scientific studies that I, apologies, that's my dog barking, okay. um, scientific studies, which I hadn't looked at before. So there's a certain training of the mind that you have to go through. Um, at the same time, I had to figure out how to tell a story in a way that would reach lay people and also mm -hmm. keep it interesting for 500 pages. Right. Um, so I do think that both things helped me a lot in writing this book, although it, it's quite amazing what you will get critiqued for mm -hmm. out there in the world of social media if people want to slam you down. Um, so a lot of um, people who take against my message uh, vegan advocates, plant-based supporters, the first thing they go for usually is, oh, she's only uh, got a master's in creative writing. What would she possibly know, mm -hmm. right? She's writing fiction. They love that one. They love mm. to say that. I must be writing fiction like some of my other, my novels. So you just have to put up with that. I know deep down that both of those skills were necessary for for reaching people with a message. So that that's uh, I mean, that's a I'm... really interesting point though like how do you come back I mean I know that you don't necessarily respond you probably don't respond to these people but how how mm. would you respond to that if someone was to say oh she's just an author she's just a writer like what does she know like what would you say to that well I think I, I would say first of all that authors since the dawn of time whether they be investigative writers investigative journalists mm. or um uh, whatever form that writing takes um they, since the dawn of time, have been looking at areas of interest, areas of concern, oh. um, and they are rarely specialists in those areas, but they they want to uncover information. So that's yeah. what we do. Yeah. Um, and I'm not ashamed to say that I did it in an area that I wasn't previously a specialist in, that a lot of authors do that. Nobody seems to mind when Bill Bryson does that. He right. writes about the body or the house or history or the history of walking and fields and nature, right? Bill Bryson, mm -hmm. everybody picks up his book, right. books, and they love to read them because yeah. it's something new that he has researched. Yeah, my husband's um, a big fan, yeah. Right. And so there's that side. And then the other thing I would say is, yes, I, I proudly am a fiction writer and uh, somebody who studies creative writing because communication of ideas is just as important as the ideas themselves and mm -hmm. I I wanted to be able to do that and I still want to do that as effectively as possible so you know if I ever were to as you say get into a debate with one of those people that's what I would say but I generally just sort of let it ride because yeah. there's absolutely no point in having those discussions yeah well I have to say Jane um, you have to be a pretty strong woman because um to to go to disagree with a movement like you know plant-based diets whatever you want to call it meat-free um veganism vegetarianism it's got so much power behind it it's got um you know the governments um health professionals um and the public like all rallying behind it saying it's better for the environment it's better for our health you know how how could you not go meat-free mm. it's, it's you've got to have some thick skin <laughs> to yeah. actually disagree with that and say well actually it's not good for the environment and it's not good for your health so I mean that kind of leads me to my first question like how do you deal with that yourself like how do, do you block do you block out um 
criticism? Because I, I imagine you have um, a lot of support as well. I do. Like, I do. A, and I can imagine that's part of what fuels mm. you and keeps you going. Mm. But I mean, are, are, have you managed a way to kind of filter out those that criticism? And I, I mean, I've read a few things online um, mm. that I came across um, regarding some of your um, interviews and blogs and you know some of the terms people use is they're pretty vile like yeah. I just wonder how you deal with that like do you just have a very thick skin or have you just got no I, I have just had to learn um you know I'm actually quite a sensitive person mm-hmm. and um my husband my kids uh friends they all warned me that I would face this I knew I was going to in fact some friends said why on earth are you writing this book you're absolutely crazy why would you invite this into your life at this stage Mm -hmm. so I knew what I was sort of getting into I guess I didn't realize just how mean-spirited it could all be um so the kind of things that you're referring to I probably haven't seen all of what you have seen Mm -hmm. um I can imagine the vile terms Uh, But I do block that out. I don't go online searching for what people are saying. Occasionally enters my arena because somebody sends it to me or it's just on Twitter and I just see it. Um, uh, But I don't look for it and I try not to um, get upset about it. I remember when the book first came out, there was uh, immediately it was reported in our Daily Telegraph here and there was a big three page spread on it. Mm -hmm. and. it invited a big pushback from the vegan community and it was very organized. It was vegan advocacy groups Mm -hmm. such as sentient media who just targeted me with a barrage of information saying I was lying. It was false. And didn't I know this? And didn't I know that they not only did that, they, they um, did a targeted attack on anyone who was quoted in my book and anyone who had supported me in it by promoting the book. So that was interesting because they stirred up a whole um, maelstrom of um, support for me, really, amongst those people. Every one of those scientists came back and fought back with information and supported me. So while I felt attacked, I also felt supported. Um, There is a massive community out there that has supported me and 90% of my interactions are with people who are sympathetic or at least open-minded. Mm-hmm. Um, one very awful period was last Christmas, about a year ago, just before Christmas, actually. And um, there was a couple of vegan activist uh, people who were having a debate. And one of them was a doctor who was pretty high up in one of a, a big hospitals in America. Mm-hmm. And um, they went across, they crossed a line uh, and and their attacks were were um, misogynistic and sexual in nature and vile, absolutely vile. And again, the outpouring of support for me and people, therefore, refuting what they were doing was huge. So although I felt fairly shocked by it, and um, obviously you get not hurt, but you get you feel very vulnerable. Um, although that happened. I also felt the opposite. And, um, you know, it was quite amusing, actually, in the end, because one of the doc- the doctor was so worried about what he had said and how it might impact his career, because I threatened to report him to the dean of his medical school. Right. And um, he begged me not to. I mean, he DM'd me for weeks. Wow. Please don't. And, and I said, okay, 
I'm going to, you have, you are going to write an online apology and here's Mm -hmm. what it's going to say. And so he did that. And then that that sort of backfired a little bit because people were saying, oh, what a nice guy. He's written this great apology. And I was thinking, okay. But still, like, you know, (laughs) he knows, he knows. He knows, he knows. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it doesn't matter what your view is because we all have freedom to to have our views. You Mm -hmm. just don't have to say it in that way. I mean, what what I love about your book, The Great Plant-Based Con, um, which I'd recommend to anybody who's interested in this topic, um, I love how you start the book you you basically say look i'm not judging anybody who chooses to eat meat free plant based um vegan vegetarian um and who just it's just their choice like they're just doing it like minding their own business this is my choice i don't want to eat meat because of this because of that um you're not judging those people and you're not telling them to change you're basically saying to the you're addressing the plant-based advocates which you yeah. describe as the people who are pushing their agenda the the plant-based agenda onto people and making people think that it's better for the environment and better for their health mm-hmm. um, and really the book is targeted at that and i really like that because that's that's you kind of took um you kind of represented myself and and anybody else who feels the same um, you know, even even putting out episodes like this on my podcast, you know, I know vegans. I, you know, I'm friends with them. And, you know, I I want to make it really clear all the time that when I put out episodes like this, I'm not attacking them and I'm not telling them mm-hmm. to change. And I'm just you know, no judgment whatsoever. But we're just talking about a topic that is out there. And that is that um, plant based diets have been you know, quite heavily pushed by the the powers that be. Mm. And maybe they don't have our best interests at heart, which is something that you refer to in the book. Yeah, that I hope to talk about later. Um, so I mean, your book takes us through four main sections. Mm-hmm. Um, the first one is, is plant based good for our health? That's, you know, first basic question. Uh, second is, will a plant based diet save the planet? Another good question. Um, who is advocating for the plant-based diet and why? Mm-hmm. And how should we eat? So those are the four main sections. And, you know, that's kind of what I want to kind of go into today. Um, so first of all, the first question, I mean, this might require a long answer. <laughs> but it may. Because there's <laughs> lots of different ways that you can answer this. And I honestly don't mind any way you want to you want to answer this. Mm-hmm. But Jane, is mm-hmm. a plant-based, is plant-based eating good for our health? So I'll let you take this wherever you okay. want. Okay. So that's a whole of section one. It <laughs> is whole of section. That's a oh, whole of section one. Yeah. Oh, um, and I guess to start with, I would say eating plants can be good for us. Mm. And it um, even a mainly plus plant-based diet can suit some people. Okay, good. Um, yeah. So, And it can suit some people at certain times in their lives if they're trying to um, deal with a certain condition or a certain uh, mood disorder or whatever. But... Mm-hmm. What, as you quite rightly pointed out, what I object to is the idea that plant-based diets, as in um, those without any animal source foods at all, or with such minimal amounts that that um, that they're negligible, mm. I object to the idea that those are universally good for people, good for everyone. Um, 
Now, it used to be that we had a great acceptance of the idea that there was no one size or all fits diet, right? Because we acknowledge that there are cultural differences. There are differences of geography and availability, mm-hmm. historical differences, income differences, um, genetic differences, which mean you, you can't, some people can't eat certain types of foods. So we've, we've before we've been able to acknowledge that there are many diets in the world that serve many purposes for people. Mm. Now, suddenly we're supposed to believe that a plant-based diet is the one for everyone around the world. So that is what to me is just a ridiculous concept. Now, what I go through in that part is, okay, why, why is it not ideal for everyone? First of all, the number one reason is the nutrient reason. So there is a a lack of certain nutrients and a shortage of other nutrients in a diet, which is Mm plant-based. So for instance, B12 is something that everybody seems to know about. And it's the first thing that vegans fight back on because they say, well, it doesn't matter. You can get B12 from a pill. But I would supplement very common supplement. supplement. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I would ask them to think, okay, well that, that is true. Um, Let's set aside the fact that that supplemented vitamins are not always absorbed in the same way as with food. Uh, Let's, let's look at the question of if we were meant to eat this way, if it really was the best way for us, why would that diet be short of B12 then? How do we explain that? Mm. Um, And it's also short of several other vitamins and, 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 when people talk about a well-planned, well-balanced vegan diet, they seem to be saying a diet where people are very on the ball, they know what they need and they get whatever they can't get from food, they get it from pills. That seems, so are we really advocating for a diet based on pills versus food when we're advocating for a well-balanced vegan diet? So, you know, those nutrients, what are those nutrients that are missing? Well, B12 is one, uh, D3, vitamin A, um, zinc, iodine, glycine, choline, um, uh, vitamin K, all of these are either absent or in short supply in in, in uh, diets which have no animal source foods. And then we have the whole question of bioavailability, which is really something, it's kind of the elephant in the room that nobody seems to write about. I rarely, rarely see, you know, online stuff or uh, thought pieces in newspapers that even mention bioavailability. Mm -hmm. So what does it mean? I'm sure your listeners are pretty au fait with what it means, but just for clarity, it means the extent to which our body can use the vitamins or the minerals, uh, which we're getting from the food. Um, And it remains a fact that the vitamins from animal source foods are vastly more bioavailable. Mm. So, you know, you can get vitamin A from um, in in beta carotene form, um, of which I think uh, we absorb about 12%, or you can get the real vitamin A from animal source foods and your absorption level is going to be in the 80s and 90%. So, uh, this is true across the board. It's true of D3 versus D2. So D3 is the animal sourced uh, version of the vitamin versus D2, which is the plant source. It's true of minerals like iron, 
Um, so I, I read this brilliant article recently by Lily Nichols, who put in, and she's an RD, you may have interviewed her. She she specializes in nutrition for pregnancy. She's, she's really good. Uh, yeah, good to interview, good for anyone who's pregnant to get her book immediately. And um, she, she um, did an analysis of how much plant food versus animal food you'd have to eat to get the same amount of bioavailable iron. Mm. And one of the comparisons was you could eat one three ounce chicken thigh or 57 cups of broccoli. So this, and this is repeated with many different foods, you know, it's the same if you want to get all of your amino acids from plants, you could eat a kilo of quinoa (laughs) or three ounces of beef. So um that, this that, is sorry, sorry yeah sorry um there's this part that just kind of reminded me there's this part in your book when you talk about protein and you mm-hmm. talk about how much um food we'd need to eat if we wanted 45 grams of protein now the reason why this caught my attention was because mm. uh, you're you're probably aware or maybe not of of the trend well it's I don't, I don't know what to call it but everyone's very aware now that 30 mm. grams of protein per meal is right like that's optimal. a new thing yeah that's mm-hmm. optimal like and it's become very um like popular in the health space mm-hmm. and it just seems to be what everybody's recommending now like everyone's jumping on the bandwagon like 30 yeah. grams of protein per meal and that's why this gripped my attention when you said that 45 grams of protein um if you were on a plant-based diet you would need to have 100 grams of brown rice or kidney beans or mm-hmm. um tofu or cashew nuts and you know 100 grams is that's a that's a huge you know that's a, that's a it might have been a thousand actually because a 100 thousand. grams is small but a thousand is what you usually have to have of these oh, things oh, oh god i need to look back at the book yeah I, I maybe it's 100 grams of carbs either. maybe i was getting it mixed up with 100 grams that's of carbs exactly right. yeah that's the right yes point. yes to get all of your protein the requisite protein you probably have to to really up your carb intake and that's going to be problematic for anyone who's who's got a propensity to diabetes or weight gain um so yes it can be done and boy are you going to feel full you are going to be bloated as anything i mean uh this you know this is something which is rarely acknowledged but if it is 30 grams of protein per meal which is advisable and i i've read that too and i also know that a lot of protein specialists say that we none of us get nearly enough. Yeah. You know, this 0.8 grams per kilo of body mm-hmm. weight recommended by the WHO is, is really not enough for mm-hmm. young developing um, uh, bodies or for the elderly. elderly. For the um, so it, it's very hard. I mean, 30 grams of protein at breakfast, for instance, you know, you have to eat quite a few eggs. Uh, but if you're not having any of the eggs, you are, you know, you're going to be hard pressed with your oatmeal and your, you know, your fruit to get that. Yeah. Do you think that we are too soft on um, the the issues with veganism? So in in one, in the first section of your book, you talk about how, um, you know, health professionals and um, those advocating the vegan diet, vegetarianism, um, they, they promote all of the great things about them, but then in the small print, 
they say, but you may need to supplement, mm-hmm. especially for pregnant women, especially for, um, you know, children and any anyone growing or needing to, you know, recovering or, mm-hmm. um, you know, that it's, it's kind of a fine print. And you mentioned in the first part that um, you, you said we're too soft footed, we're too soft um, with uh, these mm-hmm. advocates. So is so is is explain what you mean by that like what do you mean by we're being too soft with them Well we we're aiming most of the time to be diplomatic and but I when I say we mm. I mean say your average doctor who's asked to comment on this on morning TV mm. or the average writer in you know uh in a in a mainstream newspaper um they are soft-footed because they don't want to offend Yeah and because I guess it's drummed into them, you've always got to have two sides to the story. Um, now, this this desire not to offend doesn't just pertain to veganism and diet. It pertains to just about everything we discuss these days. You can't say it like it is. You cannot have a firm opinion on one side or the other, unless it's the popular side. Mm. And you're allowed to have it. You're, you know, and I'm not going to bring up what those debates are, but I think we all know what they are. There, there are several of them floating around, whereby we are very soft-footed about, I'm very careful about offending the mainstream narrative. So I I think I quoted one example where on um, Breakfast TV, again, there was uh, an interview and it was about a new study that had come out that showed that vegans have two and a half times the level of fracture uh, bone fractures like hips and ankles to uh, to omnivores, mm. and they were questioning why might might this be? And this was a perfect opportunity to talk about nutrients, to talk about the fact that yes, you can if you want to eat vegan diets for the reason you know for whatever reason you want, but you need to be really careful about the supplementation, or you need to be aware that these are the risks you are taking with your body. Mm-hmm. Instead of doing that, they brought on a doctor who didn't want to offend and who said, oh, I don't know. Vegans are pretty clued up about what they need. I think you can, you know, for instance, if you want um, if you want to get the, the calcium and the iron and and uh, the B12, you, you know, eat broccoli. And, and this is just false information because it's so impossible, as we've just discussed, to get the amount of nutrients that you need from those foods. It. It's just irresponsible. So at what point does irresponsibility um, cross over into kind of almost a criminality? Like it's really very harmful. Mm. Um, And I think Paul Mason does a great video and he just put it out on YouTube. I encourage anyone to look for him. Just Google Paul Mason on veganism. And and he said that actually promoting, I I forget what his words were, but he said promoting vegan diets as a good source of iron for instance and he only picked that one and he just discussed others but this one is actually criminal it's a criminal offense because how can you promote it when you know you can't very much iron in a world where there are two billion people who are iron deficient and in a world where chronic shortages of iron and pernicious anemia uh, anemia from b12 shortages can actually kill you Right. So he's not being soft footed. He's Mm -hmm. stating it like it is. He's saying 
you know, let's face some facts here about what these nutrients do for us mm-hmm. and what the shortage will also do to us. Right. Um, right. And I would love to see people just talking about facts. You, you know, you don't have to have a screaming row on television or in a newspaper or mm-hmm. on a podcast. You don't have to have that. You just have to have the facts stood up against one another. Yeah. I mean, I have to say, like, you know, I always admire people who, you know, stick their neck out and just say it as it is, because, you know, even myself, okay, so I put out podcasts like this, and mm-hmm. that that kind of by default tells my view on things. Mm-hmm. But, you know, the thought of me directly putting it in a post, um, I, I just wouldn't. Like, like, because I don't want to put my neck out there. I don't want to like say anything that's going to offend anyone. And, um, you know, and that's, that's something that I, you know, that I need to kind of, you know, face and kind of have to deal with. And I think a lot of people feel the same because it's, you know, it can be with social media now, it's, it's frightening. It's a frightening world when everyone can say anything they want. I mean, I've, I've put out a few controversial episodes in the past. Um, one was about, um, oxalates, which I know you mentioned your book and which Mm -hmm. I want to discuss actually after this. Um, another one was about, um, you know, the the foods that cause disease like flour, sugar, Mm -hmm. and vegetable oils. Mm -hmm. Um, and gosh, the, 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 you know, some of those posts have kind of gone viral and the, the comments you get in response is like literally swearing, um, yeah. attacking you personally and like attacking um, your uh, attacking um, background, attacking looks, attacking yeah. the way you speak. And it's just, it's scary. And it's like, so you just end up saying nothing. And I can imagine, you know, that's why it's so difficult for people to just say as it is. And, um, you know, the the plant-based world is a very powerful one. It's mm. It's got a lot of backing. And, and also because it's got so many important issues that it uses as part of its yeah. weapon, weaponry. So yeah. like environment, yeah. climate change, like how can anybody who hasn't read up on it, how can anybody go against that and say, well, no, I don't agree. Like this is climate change. This is your children. Yeah. This is the future mm. generations. Like it's so sensitive and it's so visceral mm. and like people just don't want to kind of, people don't want to do it. Like they don't want to go against it. So anybody like yourself, or like you just said, Paul Mason, like people just speaking out, I'm just like, gosh, well done like yeah and sometimes you have to do that and then you step back because (laughs) you're just like okay I'm done you know I'm sure you know I'm so sorry if you've had those kind of comments they are not very nice they are not Mm -hmm. nice and they they make you question what you're doing but then you know you wake up the next day and you realize you, you have to keep going you have to um fight for if not the truth because I know a lot of people would say well you you're not the only person with the truth mm. uh, we have to fight for at least the ability to put an alternative point of view and to have people understand it and decide for themselves that's all i'm asking for mm-hmm. really is for people to look at this information and decide whether it's plausible whether um it's convincing mm-hmm. and and what might be the questions that they could ask of plant-based advocates themselves in order to get to grips with the with the issue of what they should eat Um, but it is so amazing that you know you receive you know uh, very uh, hurtful uh, and aggressive treatment for talking about food (laughs) for talking about 
vegetable oils or flour, right? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you have to stop and think, well, how did we get here? That yeah. food has become this political weapon. Mm, it's um, a weapon. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's, it's, I mean, like you said in the book, um, when, when it comes to the environment piece, or um, I, I can't remember which section it was, um, you mentioned how the, gov- the, the, the bigger powers, like the governments, mm-hmm. they, they, they want to use the um, food, the meat um, production as an excuse for climate change, because they'd rather you focus on that rather mm-hmm. than um fossil fuels which is big money like plane trips and cars and um there's just more money in in protecting that so they'd rather go with the plant-based um kind of route and you know there's money to be made there like you said lab-based meats and like there's a lot of money to be made if people go plant-based so I mean your view is um you know really interesting because you almost allude to the fact that there's a more sinister kind of um uh, motivation behind the plant-based movement so can you just speak on that a little bit yeah I don't know if I'd use the word sinister okay but I would say that the effect can be quite sinister. Mm. So I think the way I look at it, and, and again, I I do try to lay this out in the book, is there's there's nobody pulling strings at the center of this movement. There's nobody coordinating all of the mm. actors and driving them to say and do the same things to push this plant-based agenda to the top. It's more that the plant-based agenda suits many commercial interests so um so well that they appear to be acting together and they do support each other so for instance you know the pharmaceutical companies are very well served by the idea that saturated fat is really bad for you ldl cholesterol super dangerous it's driven by saturated fat therefore you've got to control your ldl therefore you probably need statins after a certain age or maybe even earlier if you're you know if you're really taking precautions so that is that is one arm. That's one way that this the whole debate about veganism is linked to pharmaceutical profit. Mm-hmm. Um, food companies you alluded to, um, yes, it's no secret that they because saturated fat, which is mostly in animal source foods, is deemed to be if that can be deemed to be um, bad for us, gives them a great excuse to produce a lots of vegan foods. Uh, opening up this whole new market for fake food, but also to use really cheap ingredients like vegetable oils and emulsifiers and all those things instead of the saturated fat containing products. Um, So profits, hey, hey, wow, who wouldn't go for that, right? So they support each other. Uh, The media, they then, sorry, they then do research, which helps to fuel and support that idea. So they're providing all the funding. So the academics have to do the, they have to do the studies that support the ideas where the funding is coming from. So that's why you see a preponderance of epidemiology being anti-meat, anti-animal foods. Yeah, yeah, go on. Were you going to say? And then the final loop the final sort of uh, piece of the jigsaw, I guess, or the 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 bit of the circle that links up is that um, the media then takes the press releases from these studies, which have been paid for by industry, usually. Um, they take those press releases, they don't look at them, 
they don't look at the study. They don't interrogate anymore. And this is partly because they don't have the staff to do that because media has been under threat. So, um, and they just parrot the press release and off it goes into the world. Mm-hmm. And I, I think somebody said recently, uh, I think it was Mark Twain they were quoting that said, you know, a lie can be halfway around the world before the truth even has its boots on. That's once so true these days. There, once it's out there, it's pretty hard to get it back, right? So this seems like an irrefutable little circle of interests who are all benefiting from the same thing. Yeah. Then you throw in the fact that some media outlets are actually funded by vegan activists to the tune of, you know, The Guardian, it was two million pounds over a couple of years that were f- probably keeping it afloat at that point because we know that 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 media outlets struggle for to to exist so that is a very direct link isn't it so if you've got animal rights activists uh funding newspapers and in return purchasing a sort of a certain set of articles or an amount of coverage which is favorable to animal rights activism you've got another kind of uh force that's acting to prop up this this Mm. um seemingly irrefutable case so it's you know, and then this is before I even get to talking about the church and how it may be involved. You know, the seventh. I love that chapter, church. by the way. I hope we get to address that. Remind yeah, me if I forget. So, um, I think a lot of people they don't understand the Seventh Day Adventist Church. They've never heard of it. There's not a church in their village or their town or whatever where they may have seen it. Um, but the fact is that that church has, since its inception, been anti-meat, and has wielded its influence through many way in many ways through dietitians organizations through the um dietary advice groups the the usda's advice uh, dietary guidelines committees all uh and, and and right through to uh founding um sort of organizations like aclm and it was basically based on the whole plant-based idea to begin with. And it's 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 expanded to be about health in general, yeah. but it definitely and and it's it's very tightly linked with that Seventh-day Adventist church. Yeah. Um now Mayor Adams in New York has appointed somebody very so very closely affiliated with ACLM to run hospital food choices across hospitals in New York City. Mm-hmm. So if anyone thinks that that church is not influencing what's on our plates they are naive and um you know obviously if you're talking about that chapter I wasn't going to go here yet like this is going later no 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 this is great I'm going with the flow this is great um but obviously we can't um we can't brush over the um story about um Mr Kellogg so as a 12 year old um, basically, mm-hmm. the reason why the Adventist Church wanted to convert everyone to meat-free is because they believed that um, going plant-based would um, kind of cleanse, cleanse mm-hmm. the soul, um, and you know, pre- prevent masturbation, and yeah. you know, it is it's kind and of impure the, thoughts, yeah, impure thoughts. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's basically the root of the you know eating plant-based for the Adventist church and and Mr um Mr Kellogg was 12 a 12 year old yeah. boy and he was on board with it and doing an, an like an activist almost on their behalf is that right, he was right. Well, of- well what he as a young boy 12 year old you're right he was tasked with typing out the manuscripts for Ellen right. yeah he was the founder of the Seventh-day Adventist church 
So he would have been typing this, just imagine, and absorbing all of this, mm. this information about meat is evil. Uh, it leads to all kinds of impure thoughts, masturbation, etc. We must wean people off meat. Must be the Garden of Eden diet, which is that's nuts right, Garden of Eden fruit. diet. The yeah. very, I mean, what what's more religious than that? A diet named Garden of Eden diet, and um, so he would have absorbed this over a period of years, and then he went on to found, um, obviously Kellogg's. And to experiment with producing the first sort of meat analog, so plant-based meats and cereals and things which would enable people to feed themselves without the risk of becoming, you know, sinful, impure, and, and whatever. I, I find so, that fascinating that that's you could say that that's the origin of our breakfast cereals. You know, know, to prevent impure thoughts, to prevent masturbation. And, you know, it's just, it's mad. Like, that's what made me yeah. really get that. I mean, that's such an attention grabbing part of the book. It's like, oh my gosh. And then you kind of go on, you know, with, with more, there's more to that story. Um, but I just thought that was absolutely fascinating. But I mean, what I wanted to kind of backtrack to, because you've said a number of um, really key points. Um, so, I mean, first of all, when you said that, you know, the, uh, the lies get round really quickly and then before the truth even gets its boots on. Um, I believe it was Natasha Campbell McBride who said mm -hmm. that it takes about 60 years approximately for yeah. a lie to get out there and for it to be absorbed and then for it to be backtracked. Like it takes about 60 years for that process to happen. Um, mm -hmm. And so obviously, um, you know, I, I don't know where we are in that cycle. But anyway, I, I just thought that was um, really interesting. But what I did want to ask you about is, you know, what, so the, the issue with meat, so we have been encouraged to not eat meat um, for many decades now. And it started with a scientist um, called Ansel Keys, like he was probably the main one in the 50s who basically linked um, saturated fat mm -hmm. um, to heart disease so saturated fat from animals let's mm -hmm. say and dairy let's say and um, it's really interesting because um, you said that it's very the, the science that he used to come up with that um, was similar to the same science um, that you could say that the number of people who drowned in a pool between 1999 and 2009 is the same number of Nicolas Cage movies. So that's the same science they use. Um, obviously, Nicolas Cage movies don't cause pool drownings, like there's no correlation there, but it's called the science of epidemiology. Right. So can you explain that? What is wrong with the science of epidemiology? So it's uh, epidemiology is often called observational science. So what you're doing is basically observing patterns in sets of data. So for instance, you could observe that between in a 10-year period, uh, drownings went up in pools, as you say, and so did Nicolas Cage movies, you know, the number of Nicolas Cage movies. And there was a perfect correlation. So, you know, if you were uh, very naive, you might make jump to the conclusion that one caused the other yeah um so that is exactly what is being done with this observational science so they will look for instance at a group of people and and conclude that the group who ate more meat more saturated fat whatever the factor is that they're actually looking at had a higher rate 
of heart disease or cancer or heart attack, death, or whatever, again, what the, the end point is. Um, and they will track that and assume there's a connection, assume that one causes the other. What epidemiology is supposed to do is it's supposed to set up a hypothesis that is then tested in uh, trials, in um, RCTs, right, which are clinical controlled situations where you can test whether that hypothesis is true or not. Unfortunately, we're in a state now where those hypotheses are either not, not tested at all, they're just put out there, that lie that goes around the world in five minutes uh, before the boots of the truth come on, or um, they are tested and the time and time again, the RCT will prove that the hypothesis was wrong, but nobody hears about those RCTs. They only hear about the original hypothesis. Mm-hmm. And again, for your listeners, there's a fantastic article just come out by Nina Teichholz, who's the author of The Big Fat Surprise, you may have read this article, which is... I haven't actually um, explained. Oh, it's, yeah. it's excellent. So she has a sub stack, which is really worth subscribing to. She's yes. she's great in this field. And she's just written a whole analysis of why is it that Harvard and Walter Willett in particular remain attached to this anti-meat bias and the anti-saturated fat bias. And she goes through why. But she, what, one of the very interesting points in that article is she points out that there have been, I think it was two dozen... RCTs, which have disproven the hypothesis of the link between red meat and diabetes. Okay, two dozen. And yet, Walter Willett's new study comes out and claims that red meat is linked to diabetes. He's doing another observational studies. He's ignoring the RCTs. This is junk science. This is this is decades worth of junk science. I mean, personally, I think we've reached the point where, whereas you could say that epidemiology has a role, mm-hmm. it plays its uh, a role and it has a purpose. Because sometimes, like you can't, you can't deny the correlation between things. Sometimes like, well, it's got to be that. No. <laughs> like, you know, sometimes, you, yeah. Well, with smoking, it proved mm, right. to be the you know the elucidator of the truth because mm-hmm. the people who smoked were ten to thirty times more likely to get lung cancer or to die, depending on which study you're talking about, Mm -hmm. than people who didn't. So that is a huge magnitude of effect. Mm -hmm. We need to remember that most of these epidemiology studies have a magnitude of effect of maybe 1.2, 1.4 at most. Mm -hmm. Now, there's something called the Bradford Hill criteria, which says that if an effect is not two or more, there's probably no causation going on, right? Now, I have yet to see any studies linking meat with a disease or with death that are two or more they don't exist well then can i just ask then i mean you know that this the stigma around saturated fat is still Mm. so strong i mean even even myself so i love a good steak Mm. even myself i'm like oh but should i be having it often like i i I even question myself even though i've spoken to so many professionals and i've you know done some research myself and i'm just like no just just have the steak like you know we we've kind of you know this is what our ancestors ate and you know it's it's full of nutrients and but even you know people if even i question it sometimes within myself like you know what do other people have 
you know, what chance do they have the public when it comes to, you know, eating red meat? Because the stigma is still there, like animal fat, lard, um, mm. red meat, you know, it's, it's, it's scary for people. Like, why, mm. why is it still so powerful? Like, why, why mm. is he going against the... the will it, I'm afraid, as Nina details, will it has way too much invested in this message, mm. the plant-based, anti-saturated fat, anti-meat message, to ever turn back or admit. Okay, his so, whole career is built yeah, on this. The right. funding of the research at his university, Harvard, was decades worth of, of uh, food companies. Um, his, he's put a stake in the ground. He's an mm. academic. Uh, it's it would be very unusual for him to say oh by the way I might have been wrong for 35 years 40 years right right so we mustn't expect him to do that mm. what would be nice is if the people who are doing other research who are bringing new research to the fore did not get persecuted quite so much or ridiculed mm. um, quite so much so yeah. because we need that balance we need so I think that in answer to your question why are we still afraid of saturated fat probably because we're really still in that 60-year cycle that you're talking about right right so in the 50s Ansel Keys planted the idea it became embedded in policy and mm. uh, thinking and studies and universities and bias and um companies and we're not through it maybe it's a 70-year cycle and we're not through it yet so are you optimistic? Does that mean you're optimistic about where we're heading? I'm a little bit optimistic. And I tell you why, because in the past three years, there's been just a flood of studies refuting the saturated fat linked with heart attacks or with diabetes or whatever. There's been a flood of them. Eventually, that has to have some effect. Um, I also think that I've seen a slight turn amongst people that I speak to, and I'd be interested in your perspective on this about the whole vegetable oil thing. Mm. Now, when I mention that vegetable oils are toxic, that they may be the things that are atherosclerotic, easy for me to say, mm. um, people don't look at me like I'm completely crazy. Mm. So I think something is happening. The word about veg oils is getting out, that they're not really lovely vegetable oils. They're made from a, an industrial process that compresses seeds, they're mm -hmm. seed oils, Mm -hmm. and chemicals and heat processing is used the heat processing damages the molecules so they start off oxidized then they get more oxidized when you cook them then they get oxidized in your body and boom you have a you know adverse health impact I um, mean that the the seed oil topic I'm just really um, interested in and I just find it absolutely fascinating how it actually came about I mean I mean to, to, to kind of frame this um, one of the issues with plant-based diets is mm. we resort to um, soy foods and vegetable oils in order to avoid animal-based protein and animal-based fats. Mm -hmm. So there are a couple of issues there when it comes to the increase in vegetable oils, but then mm. also um, because soy, the quality of it isn't mm that great and um you mentioned in your book as well just um it, it's very commonly a gmo like mm -hmm. a genetically modified food and a genetically modified ingredient that's used in a lot of processed foods out there um mm -hmm. so those are the two main issues that i saw you identify in your book but i mean when it comes to seed oils um do you know the the story i think well what's the brand is it crispr 
Crisco. Uh, Crisco, that's it. Crisco. Oh, do, you, do you know the yeah. story, the late yeah. 1800s? It's bloody fascinating how, like, yeah. Chris, um, they they basically came out in the late 1800s and they, um, you know, sold, I think it was cottonseed oil was the first oh, ever vegetable oil. Mm-hmm. And they pushed it out to the US, I think, first. And they, the public actually rejected it first because they were like, no, <laughs> like, I'm not going to eat this stuff. Like, this is used for lamps. It was used and... for lubricating machinery. Yes, that's right. Yes, and yes. it was rejected, like, full on rejected. Mm-hmm. But then because the marketing was so... Um, you know, was so good and there was so much money put into it that actually the the public began to take it on. Like, and and it's just crazy how that was the start of vegetable oils. And then obviously the other vegetable oils pl- um, piled on on top of that. Mm-hmm. And um, that's how margarine came about, like trans fats, like mixing saturated with, you know, seed oils and, um, mm-hmm. and you know, the, the adulteration of olive oils. And it's just... Yeah just crazy and I've, I've spoken to um a, a couple of um people who are so really against seed oils um mm. can you and, speak to Tucker goodrich by any chance uh, yeah no no um actually no. it's dr chris kenobi and susan oh, yeah. and alexander they're um actually they're on a trip at the moment around seven pacific islands um oh. actually going around to um local tribes and mm. people who basically don't have any vegetable oils in their diet or very very right. little and um they're actually investigating their health like currently they're on the trip at the moment which is really exciting for them yeah. but yeah. um but it's it's just absolutely fascinating how um you know the story of of vegetable oils but that's the problem with the plant based diet um in order to mm. avoid animal based fats yeah. The, the increase in vegetable oils goes up as well. So, like, I mean, that's a huge problem. And, and when you say that, um, you know, correlation doesn't exactly mean causation, but but sometimes the evidence is, is so powerfully connected. So, mm. and, and the rate of disease or chronic disease mm. correlates quite strongly with that's, seed oil um, consumption. Absolutely. Now, Chris Kenobi, I've seen his charts and he can correlate many diseases with the rise in vegetable oils and he mm. I know he personally believes it isn't so much the sugar in diets because that's mm. another kind yeah, of thing that's, that's interesting your diet yeah uh, when you're avoiding meat and dairy um he uh he he makes a very convincing case now as you say it is epidemiological mm. at this point, so I think yes. it's fantastic they're, that they're going into uh societies a bit like Western Price did back in mm. the 19th correct yeah what is it that makes these populations healthy or healthier than the 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 populations that eat white bread and vegetable oils flour etc um the one thing that is for certain is you can't prove causation with these graphs with this epidemiology what you can do is disprove it though Mm. i think the burden of proof is much lower if you're just trying to say no that can't be it because so for instance what you can say is that rates of diabetes for example or heart disease have gone up while saturated fat intake since the 1960s has gone down Mm. so you can say it's not plausible for saturated fat to be causing that Mm. right and that should get you started on these um RCTs, which of course, as Nina has pointed out, there have been about 24 of them that have proved that that, that there's no link. So, um, you know, I, I do support 
epidemiology in that sense, if it's pointing us to something that we must investigate. And mm-hmm. that's, I guess, what Chris Kenobi is trying to do. Others are doing that. T- Tucker Goodrich is is interesting. He's a self-taught uh, researcher and he is dug, he has dug into so many papers about vegetable oils. And he works from the from the perspective not of epidemiology or looking at trends or or population groups. He looks at mechanisms mostly. Mm. So he looks at what, what might it be in vegetable oil that is causing that could cause certain diseases, and he finds those mechanisms. And uh, one of them, for instance, that that he finds is is very prevalent in um, veg oils is that it turns off the H the four HNE gene. Okay. And the 4-HNE gene is an anti-cancer gene. Oh, so right. that's just an example mm. of one of the, the ways that vegetable oils may, in fact, um, cause harm. Other work has focused on oxidation and what that does to the parts of the body. Mm. Um, so, um, so, you know, I, I think you get mechanistic yeah. data and you get... Um, uh, RCTs, which actually track biomarkers from in different people, and you have the population data, then you have a much more robust kind of um, uh, understanding of what, what these foods really do. So, I, I mean, I guess what we're trying to say is that meat, animal produce, it that is not the cause of cancer. It's not the cause of heart disease. Is that what you're saying? That is what I'm saying. Okay. That's exactly what I'm yeah. saying. That's yeah. that's what that's what I get very from much. you very strongly. I mean, we've talked about how nutrients are missing from a plant-based diet, but when it comes to um the harm, now this is this is a really mm. um controversial topic. Um, the possible harm that a plant-based diet could do to your health. So you talk about the um let me try and see how you relate you talk about this threesome um uh, i i can't the troublesome threesome so you talk about oxalates um phytates and lectins so not only can a plant-based diet um be uh deficient but it can Mm -hmm. also be harmful if you have too many of these terrible threesome um Mm So uh, there's this really interesting story. I don't know if you've heard it. I think you have about um, Liam Hemsworth. Yes. About yes. how he went vegan. And he had to cancel, I think in 2019, he had to cancel all of his plans, award ceremonies, because he was rushed to hospital with kidney stones. Mm. And he came out publicly saying it was all of those spinach smoothies he had and it was the vegan diet that he was on and obviously the outrage and the outpouring of like are you crazy like that how did spinach smoothies make you sick but actually um he was referring to oxalates which is really interesting so can Mm. you speak a little bit about oxalates um lectins and phytates like why do plants have these terrible um troublesome threesome yeah so plants have these anti-nutrients, we call them, because essentially they're trying to protect themselves. They're trying not to get eaten mm. in nature. And so um, in the same way that some plants have a bitter taste, you know, and, and the origin of that would be don't eat me, don't pick me, or at least don't pick me until I'm ready, you know, till the cycle is through. Um, so 
But what those anti-nutrients do to us, for some people, they don't make any difference at all. Some people can tolerate them in small amounts and they won't feel effects or they won't connect the effects. Then other people, if they are eating too much of those uh, anti-nutrients, will suffer various um, impacts in the body. So one of the impacts is that they will be gradually depleting nutritionally because the absorb what those do, phytates and um, oxalates in particular, they reduce absorption of other minerals mm -hmm. in your body. So for instance, with oxalates, it's calcium. Mm. With phytates, it'll be zinc and iron, which are impacted. So you, you won't get as much and therefore you think you're eating well, but because it's being not being absorbed, you're, you won't be eating well. So there's that nutrient deficiency, which could arise. And this is by the way, why the WHO, if you read the fine print of their, some of any of their papers, they recommend that in countries where grain and, and wheat is, is, is the staple of the diet and not much meat is eaten, the recommended daily intake of zinc is 1.7 times what it is in a country where you can have meat, wow. where you eat meat. And there's that a is, fine print you're that's talking about. Mm -hmm. of the fact that you're not going to get all the zinc because of the wheat and the grains. So you better eat more in order to absorb enough. So that's one thing. But then the other impact is the one you alluded to about eating, um, Liam Hemsworth, which is the excess can actually cause other things to happen like kidney stones, mm -hmm. like digestive distress, like arthritis in, in the joints, ankles being uh, um, a particular one. And again, Sally Norton has pioneered a lot of work on in this field and has written a great book called Toxic Superfoods about just how this happens in the body. So, you know, and it's not very difficult to understand because, um, most doctors for normal people would recommend about a hundred milligrams of oxalates a day in your diet. Mm. If you're having a spinach smoothie with say three cups of spinach, you're getting a thousand mm -hmm. in one smoothie. Yeah. It's not hard to see. And then you throw almonds in there. Almonds are also very high in oxalates. Yeah. And then maybe some sweet potatoes. They're also very high. So you can quickly see those three foods are going to be a staple of a, a vegan diet aren't they and for then, a lot of and people. considered superfoods as well yeah. yeah and a lot of people will poo poo this idea and they will not have seen evidence of it mm. and one of the reasons i think is that doctors are not trained to look out for it though mm. i think it'd be very unusual to go to a doctor and say doctor i'm i'm having terrible gastric distress and i have pain in my ankles and oh pain in my kidneys mm. and what might that be? I don't know that many doctors would be clued enough, clued up enough to say, yeah. let's investigate your oxalate intake. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's, it's so interesting. I love this topic because um, the, the it people will poo-poo this idea. They will say, this is absolute rubbish. And mm -hmm. I'll admit, even myself, I was just like, really though, really? Like spinach, yeah. with all of those all of those problem foods out there, spinach, mm -hmm. like really, can can yeah. I can I take this on right now? Like it's a lot. Yeah. Um, and I actually interviewed Sally Norton and she was, it was an absolutely fabulous interview and she just really dove into it. And what became clear to me was that was actually um, one of the... Um, episodes that brought on a lot of opinions like a lot of um naysayers and a lot of people supporting it as well because and and what became really clear to me 
is unless you've been through it, you will, it's very tempting to poo-poo it. But the Mm -hmm. people who were supporting the episode, they were so heartfelt and they were like, honestly, um, you have no idea how bad the oxalate, this happened to me. Yeah, like this, you have Mm -hmm. no idea like the pain I was in and how much it changed my life taking oxalates out. Like, so it's very, became very clear to me that unless you've experienced it yourself, it's very easy to be like, oh, spinach, like what's the harm? But do you think, um, do you think, um the the these um troublesome threesome do you think mm. they're a problem for everybody like will everyone have joint pain because of spinach or do you no, think I don't. issue or do you think there's a genetic component there like what, what are your thoughts on that um I don't know what Sally would say but I, I think it has to be true that there's a there's a different propensity depending on your genetic makeup mm. and depending what foods you were raised on and how much you've had through your lifetime and all of those mm-hmm. things. Right. And for some people, it may be perfectly okay to have a cup full of spinach a day and a sweet potato every night for dinner mm. and, and that kind of thing. It's, but for others, it isn't. Mm. And I think to be clued, enough, clued into the information to look for signals in our body. Mm. And we also have to acknowledge that certain diets will give you more of propensity than others. So if you're replacing meat, eggs, and dairy with these other foods, these so-called superfoods, you are more likely to have an overload. Now, I I think part of the problem is our unwillingness to look, mm. as you've said. I, I sort of a, a, a young woman known to me who um, I had lunch with maybe six months ago with her family who are also some of them vegetarian. She's a vegan. She's had Emmy for six years. Mm. She couldn't get out of bed at one point. She still can't really. And she finds it very difficult. She has very low energy and um, lots of pain. And, Mm. and I wanted to say to her, do you even ever consider that this might be a result of your vegan diet? Now, I don't know which result, whether it's the lack of nutrients, Mm. whether it's the overload of oxalates and phytates. I don't know which aspect is the thing that's giving her the distress. But I would bet I would bet a quite a large amount of money that if she gave up her vegan diet, she would find her symptoms reduced or went away. Did you mention it or did you hold back? Yeah. Unless someone asks, you don't want to. Social situation and I didn't want to get on the wrong side of either her or her mother. If she ever came to me, that's what I would say. Yeah, I agree. If they come to me or to come to anyone, Mm -hmm. you have to have opened up your mind to this possibility. Mm -hmm. And I, I don't know quite what does that. Yeah. Just don't know what makes some people experience extreme ill health and say okay I'm going to change my diet because it must have something to do with it Mm. and other people will go on for years and never think about doing that yeah it's quite it's it's a tricky yeah um it's it's very tricky um like because you want to be aware that you don't want to push your Mm. um you don't want to push yourself and your views onto someone who's not asking for it um, but I can imagine inside, like, um, you know, you're thinking, gosh, I wonder if that is it. Like, I can imagine what was what that feeling was like for you. It's like, oh, God, you know, I, I wonder if I should say something or not. But then you're just like, no, you know, um, and I, I agree, I probably would have been the same. But um, I, I just find the plant food that the troublesome threesome, as you say, I just find it really fascinating. And I think, it, you know, that might take some time for people to grasp it. 
when it comes to just, um, I mean, it's a big topic <laughs> when it comes to um, climate change. And do you think we are victims of what you refer to as errant thinking, um, Dr. Kendrick? Errant yeah, yeah, thinking. Yeah. So what is this term and are we are we victims of it? Um, yeah. Yeah, I think the way he describes errant thinking is, oh, my goodness, we have a problem. Mm-hmm. Uh, we We need a solution right away. And we've got to be able to implement it. Oh, gosh, cows, they produce methane. That must be the solution. Mm. We've got to get rid of the cows, right? So he, I think I paraphrased there, but that would be, I think what he would say is happening. And that definitely is happening. So these quick fix solution, like quickly get in there, make a change and then run with it. Yeah, the calls for the culling of 30% of the cattle herd in Ireland Mm. are a pure and simple attempt to get Ireland's carbon budget back to even or to meet its carbon uh, net zero targets that every country has net zero targets. So the quick fix is get rid of the cows, no more methane from them. But there are just dozens of repercussions from that kind of quick fix errant thinking, which is, I mean, let's start with if you get rid of the cows in Ireland, they export most of their beef anyway. So, so other people, countries are going to get that beef from somewhere else. It might be from somewhere with a bigger carbon footprint where forest is being cut down mm. for soy plantations to feed cattle or for the cattle themselves, right? So by eradicating the cattle that has grown mostly on pasture in Ireland, where, by the way, nothing else is really done because that's what Ireland is suited for. Their land is suited for that. You're then creating, so you're popping it down here and it'll pop up somewhere else, right? The other thing which is errant is um, it fails to take into account things other than the carbon footprint, Mm -hmm. which are very important. Biodiversity, Soil health. How do you build soil health without animals on the land? Right. You need them, right? To kind of actually like like till and like, you know, get the microbes and yeah, exactly. Um it doesn't take into account farmer livelihoods and communities Mm. and um economic integrity. You know, countries have to do what they can do, what they can they have to profit from the industries that they can have in in their Mm. countries. So all of these things are being downplayed and just because we have carbon tunnel vision. Mm. And the other thing which is happening is nobody's talking about the other sources of methane. So methane comes from a, me- a wide variety of things, natural and unnatural, uh, sorry, natural and man-made, including industry, right? including uh, wetlands, including oceans, including landfill. And by going for this this quick, easy fix of get rid of the cattle, we're ignoring all of those other things. So methane from cattle is only about 15% of the total carbon budget, right? That's not very much. And it has been acknowledged by the IPCC in its sixth assessment that we are already overstating the warming impact of methane from cattle by about three to four times and understating the warming impact of, of methane from other sources like industry. So this is more than just sad for farmers, sad for Ireland, sad for cows, right? It is about 
it's pushing us down a route which will not fix the problem Mm -hmm. and will create other problems. Mm -hmm. So yes, you'll get your, you know, you'll be a little step closer to the mathematical um, meeting of targets, but it's all going to come unstuck in a few years time because of what we're not doing. Right. Right. And also, um, you you mentioned um, animal cruelty, which, Mm -hmm. I mean, first of all, um, you know, anybody who says that they, what would you say to someone who, who is avoiding meat because of animal cruelty? Like, do you, do you have any thoughts on that? I would say I understand that. Mm. And I understand the visceral reaction, which is, I do not want to eat a chicken, which has been housed with a million other chickens. Yeah. Um, in really inhumane conditions, or I don't want to eat meat from a feedlot where the cow doesn't move and it's fed lots of grains and it's uncomfortable and it's full of antibiotics. Mm -hmm. And so uh, I do understand that the, so I would be, I would be putting all of my energy into more humane conditions for Mm -hmm. raising sourced foods rather than them getting rid of the animals altogether and I know that that's not easy and Mm. I know that that is not um it's not quick but Mm. I think it's laudable Mm. and I would really love to see universities doing that so what I find distressing is that we recently had in this country a letter signed by 600 university academics calling for meat-free, actually vegan meals on campuses in the cafeterias. And what I really would love for them to do is do something like they are going to source only meat from certain types of farms, meat from Mm -hmm. regenerative sources. They're going to seek always to have the highest welfare highest ecologically sound uh, standards possible for the food they serve in their camp in their um uh, cafeterias if that means there's a little less meat because the, and the servings have to be smaller because there is less of that kind of product around or because it's more expensive at the moment so be it that to me is a more intelligent way of leading the thinking on this instead of this very knee jerk virtue signaling um uh attempt to um to get people to just get rid of meat altogether and eggs and fish. And, and then you have the kind of the criminality element of it, which I which Dr. Mason would say, and by I use that word loosely, um is it right, is it just to ask young women of childbearing age who are most at risk from nutrient deficiencies at this period of their lives, mm-hmm. is it right to ask them to do without animal source foods? At what point does that become immoral? Because mm-hmm. even Eat Lancet, which is um, the organization that you may know about who's yep. who's pushing for the plant-based diet around the world and for the past five years has been doing so. In its original report, even they said that their diet, which it's about half an ounce of meat a day. It's it's so nearly vegan. Um, and it really downplays the importance of dairy and eggs and um, any animal foods. Even they admit that that diet is not suitable for babies, children, toddlers, teenagers, young women of child, childbearing age, pregnant women, ill people, old people. Mm-hmm. So 
this is again the fine print and i just do not understand how anyone can hold up that diet as the best diet if um that is true it's it's just it's not right it is immoral to do that yeah so we have we have morality to do with animals the way we treat animals we also have morality to do with what we what we do to the next generation yeah. of, of young women young men children who need these foods yeah and that's what we gloss over and that's what is glossed over it, the, the mm-hmm. effect that the plant-based diet could have on future generations mm-hmm. and also um just how you know the plant-based diet isn't um necessarily innocent when it comes to animal cruelty it's not it's you know, right but the i mean when i interviewed zoe harcombe um mm-hmm. she she put up a slide about um the fields that have been kind of cut mm-hmm. down like for all the plants and the grains and um, you know, she basically listed all of the animals that would have died in that process. And mm-hmm. she's like, well, what's more important, a rabbit, you know, a cow, like, you know, what was the comparison here? So, you know, I think, I think it's, I think in summary, I think the, um, it, that the plant-based diet is just way too, um, like shooting from the hip, like it's mm-hmm. too, um, quick to judge, um, the, the, the situation on the planet, um, and also there are just some higher powers that have some other invested interests that aren't necessarily focused on our health or the environment, like, which is what they say. Um, mm-hmm. so, I mean, I wouldn't judge anyone for, um, eating, uh, for, for avoiding meat for their own reasons, but I think I agree with you. Um, it's the plant-based advocates, the ones who are pushing plant-based diets onto us. Um, that's what, this is all about that's who this is aimed at so I think mm-hmm. it's really well said and once again I the, the book is absolutely incredible and I would just recommend it to anybody who is looking for a book like this um so this has been a fantastic conversation thank you so much Jane is there anything that you want to say to finish and what is the best way for people to get hold of you after this well you don't necessarily want everyone to get hold of you <laughs> like you said at the beginning don't come to me with your yeah. comments but um how could you comments and constructive comments yeah, constructive uh, comments are welcome yeah so um people can direct message me on twitter i'm jane reese buxton it's very easy to find um i um and that's probably the best way i don't put my email address on my website because it's too easy for the people to um to send abuse um so I, um, you know, I'm sorry if that's if that's difficult for people, but I am willing to engage and um, and anyone who wants to, I will I will definitely do that. Fabulous. Well, thank you so much, Jane. This was a fabulous conversation and um, I hope we get to do this again soon. Yeah, thank you. I enjoyed it very much. I'm Tamara Walpole and you've been listening to Your Body's Way. If you haven't already, please subscribe, share rate and review this podcast you can find me on instagram as tamara walpole nutrition join me next time for some more juicy information on how to help you on your journey to your best self yet your body's way is the only way chat soon